Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talk Gnosis After Dark. Tonight, we are being joined by our friend, Bishop Timothy Mansfield. Greetings, Bishop Mansfield. How are you this evening? Greetings, Bishop Canterbury. I'm very well. And as usual, being joined by Bishop Peterson, as well as Father Tony. Um, During our video show earlier today, we uh, had a very interesting uh, guest on, uh, uh, Wandro Rensler, and we were discussing meditation, which I know is true uh, and dear to your heart. Um, I think, though, from a little bit different uh, perspective, uh, he was coming from a from a Buddhist lineage, and it was very interesting to hear what he had to say. And, you know, many of the things that, that we were kind of bringing up in the show is, uh, uh, I thought one of the things that he brought up that was very important, important was this idea of mindfulness um, in his meditation practice. But then we, uh, I had also brought up uh, several ideas of kind of different Western concepts of meditation. I know in your own spirituality, uh, you practice a lot of meditation. Um, do you see a big difference in Western meditation practice over, let's say, Eastern meditation practice? It's a great question. Uh, it's a it's a kind of a complicated question because of the history mm-hmm. of. I so I, I I watched the show full disclosure, so I have a you know I uh, was there for that there for that question. And mm-hmm. um, if I remember the way you framed it was you know a lot of a lot of people in the West in our sort of circles in independent sacra- sacramental circles and in Gnostic circles and in esoteric circles, a lot of us have been exposed to meditation through esoteric and occult systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in itself, just the history of that over the last 150 years um, has been complex because the, the ways in which we've, we've sort of included meditation in a lot of magical systems is from India mm-hmm. because so many of the, you know, an awful lot of what's 20th century esotericism draws from theosophical roots in the late, 18th, early, uh, late 19th, early 20th century. And a lot of those theosophical roots explicitly reached out to meditative traditions in India and, and Tibet to a lesser extent. Um, a lot of Alistair Crowley's work leans very heavily on, on yogic meditation, Vedantic meditation, and to some extent some Tantra. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's because I think at that point there wasn't really much awareness of the presence of a meditation tradition kind of in, indigenous to Europe or indigenous to the, to the West, broadly construed. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and that's kind of wrapped up in the complicated history of the contemplative traditions in the Western church and, and the, the ways that's ebbed and flowed and shifted and changed through the quietest heresy in the 18th century and um, everything that happened after that. So it's a complicated question that I've now forgotten the question. Because I've just raved about background. <laughs> can, you, can you ask me the question again, and we'll give it another try? I think you answered it. With, you know the the comparisons between Eastern and Western styles. Absolutely, because yeah, you know it's interesting that that you mentioned you know uh, Alistair Crowley because uh, I think probably my first meditation practices were a result of reading Book Four, and um, you know and you know so much of it going back then was seems so complicated to me you know you must pick a certain body posture asana and then you've got to remain perfectly still and you got to focus upon your breath and and it all seemed very strange and foreign you know to uh you know to a young neophyte trying to uh you know uh 
trying to meditate. And then later on, you know, started reading other works and meditation didn't quite seem as foreign as Crowley, you know, had made it out to be. But there are definitely, I would say that just in my experience, um, um, I don't see as much focus uh, on many of the Western uh, uh, traditions on some of the things that you do see in the Eastern traditions, things like body postures and breath, some of the things that Crowley did teach. I mean, many will tell you to get comfortable, get in a relaxing position, but not necessarily sit in a dragon asana or sit in a lotus position and, you know, remain perfectly still till your body's, you know, rigid and, you know, till you feel like you're going to collapse, you know. Um, In your own meditation practices, is there anything specifically like you do with your breathing, with your body? Yeah, so my, I mean, my predominant practice is centering prayer. Um, and mm-hmm. centering prayer traces its history back through the Trappist monastic tradition, and mm-hmm. the ultimate, ultimately back through uh, works like the Cloud of Unknowing, um, mystics like Jean-Pierre de Cassade in, in France in the 18th century, um, and then ultimately, as everybody on the, on the Christian side of things does, back to the, the, the Desert Fathers and Mothers in the, the second century in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's outgrowths of that tradition, which do, uh, particularly as it, as it manifests as hesychasm in the Eastern church, um, there's a great deal of interest in, in breathing and posture, um, centering prayer in general, because it's a modern formulation of that older tradition. Um, you know, there's a insistence on a straight spine, uh, uh that's about it <laughs> and nothing in particular about breathing other than, um, we sometimes use breath as a centering prayer all, all rotates around more around surrender than on focus. So it's, a, it's quite different from shamatha, but um, it has similarities and differences. And one of the ways in which you can use breath in centering prayer is to use the natural flow of the breath as a, um, as a method of surrendering attachment to thought or, or emotion as it's happening in the present moment. So it's, it's more kind of using the natural flow of breath rather than manipulating the natural flow of breath. And in some of those sorts of meditation practices that you get from um, kind of Vedanta inflected through theosophy mm-hmm. <laughs> that we're so familiar with from occult traditions in the West, um, a lot of that stuff is, you know, do this with your breath or focus particularly on this part of your breath and then, you know, slow the breath down so that it does the following things. And, right. You know, I mean – there's so much emphasis on timing the breath and, and lengthening this portion of the breath or contracting that portion of the breath, all of which is really valuable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, I think what you see in Crowley, though, is interesting things, right? So um, Londra is from the Shambhala tradition, which is a really interesting point to encounter meditation. Um, Crowley, by contrast, so, so Crowley's a, as much as he tried to be a, um, a modern dude, was a 19th century gentleman, right? Um, and, the, and the theosophists before him were very much like starch collar top hat types, right? With mm-hmm. uh, fancy Tony Sylvia mustaches. Um, <laughs> so, so just imagine for a second that a, that a, um, that a very well-educated Victorian lady or gentleman uh, went to India and uh, it's a, a pretty traditional Victorian goes to India and encounters a pretty traditional Indian teacher of meditation who's very fastidious about getting the tradition exactly right and Mm -hmm. these two things encounter each other those two forms of traditionalism mesh and you get this 
fastidious concern about the precise way in which everything's got to be absolutely, you know, correct mm-hmm. um, without any real awareness of what correct would even mean, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's so many different schools of, of meditative teaching. India is big, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think one-sixth of all the people on the planet live in India. So <laughs> there's a lot of diversity in different spiritual systems, and that number could be wrong. I just pulled that out of my head. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Tony, Tony can look it up in the background on Wikipedia while we're talking. Um, he insists on strict factual accuracy. <laughs> strict factual accuracy. This is talknosis. Uh, um, by contrast, right? So Shambhala in the West comes specifically from the teaching of Chogyam Trungpa. Um, Tibetan, so he's a Tibetan monk the, uh, who fled Tibet, I think, in the Ooh, I'm going to get this wrong, but the late 50s, um, started teaching in the UK, ultimately moved to America, and was one of the first native Tibetan teachers to really, he wasn't the first native Tibetan teacher to try and teach Tibetan Buddhism in the West, but he was the first one to really kind of go, whoa, hang on a second, these people have different heads to us. They see the world in a totally different way. If I just teach the traditional thing, it's not going to work. This is not going to work. How do I teach the pith of this? How do I teach the essence of Buddhism to these people in such a way that it's going to really land? So he really pioneered two things. And so one was a a unique style of teaching Tibetan tradition in the West, um, in the Buddha, like Tibetan Buddhist tradition in the West. And the second thing was he, he took this Shambhala teaching, which is sort of Buddhist and sort of not, but very Tibetan and formulated a way to teach that in the West so that there was a way for people to, approach a sort of spirituality but without having to commit to Buddhism as a religion. Um, and he came up with a whole bunch of innovative and interesting ways to land critical things about Buddhist thought in a Western mind, in an American mind in particular. Um, and the, a lot of his students, he had very famous students, Pema Chodron, um, Reggie Ray, uh, there's a lot of, and Lodro, right? So a, a lot of, not one of Chogyam's, not one of Trungpa Rinpoche's direct students, I suspect, but his students go on to do amazing things, right? It, it, the impact of, the, of his work through the 60s and 70s um, is still being felt and will still be felt in, in the United States and globally today because he pioneered a way of bringing Buddhism to the West. Um, so the, I think the contrast between those two things is interesting because what Trungpa pioneered and what teachers like Lodro are carrying on is this idea of, okay, let's just get rid of all the rigmarole. <laughs> How do we get down to the thing that's actually doing the business? What, it, what is it about, about Buddhist meditation, about Tibetan Buddhist meditation and the way we teach it that is, that is effective? Like, do you need mm-hmm. to have a special hat in order to practice this? Is it required to, you know, have, um, you know, images of, of various deities around as you're doing it? Or, or could we just focus on a technique? Um, I'd like to point out for the record that I think you need to have a special hat for everything. So, yes. Well, <laughs> uh, so there's another, I mean, there's another dimension of the, of the conversation uh, about the relationship between Gnosticism specifically and Tibetan Buddhism specifically, because I think those, those two, like more even than Buddhism as a whole, I think Tibetan Buddhism and Gnosticism more even than, than, than Western spirituality as a whole, those two traditions seem to kind of line up and connect quite a lot. And I, it, it possibly is primarily about headgear. Yep. Yep. Fantastic hats. We may all just share a fascination 
with fantastic hats. I, uh, <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> Somebody write that down in a gospel. <laughs> well, actually, so now now that you mentioned, um, y- you and probably uh, Deacon John DeGilio are the, the two people I know who are probably most qualified to talk about meditation in a Gnostic context. Um, specifically, because you both know some things about Buddhism, and you both know some things about Gnosticism, and you've both done work on you know what what the intersection looks like between those two and how to navigate the different symbol sets and how to navigate the languages um you know greek to tibetan to english to this to that the other so why for you do you think that meditation is important for somebody who is interested just just in gnosticism like me for example i really couldn't get very interested in buddhism in any of its forms Mm-hmm. But I'm a Gnostic, so why should I meditate, I guess, is the question. Good question. The, I think the, 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 well, the curiosity of a Gnostic, I, I think in some sense, more than for, more than for other Christians, um, there's, there's places in which Buddhism and Mainstream Buddhism and mainstream Christianity kind of meet, but there's a lot of places in which they miss each other in terms of approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for Gnostic folk, Christian or not, um, because our concern is primarily around how to acquire knowing, how to, how to shift our knowing from, from regular, and if you want to get all kind of hardcore dualistic and somewhat Sethian on the matter, you know, broken and defective knowing, which is mm-hmm. characterized by the, by the default state of the mind, and kind of ascend or shift, um, undergo metanoia into correct knowing, into the the um, into wisdom, if you like, mm-hmm. s- such that the, the possibility of the pleroma begins to open out. Um, then the fundamental place you encounter correct knowing is in studying the actual nature of the mind as it arises in the moment, uh, which is precisely the same concern that a Buddhist has. Like what 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 is? I think Lodro almost said exactly that same thing. Like what what is actually going on in my mind in this moment? What is my mind actually doing? How can I, if you can't notice, to phrase it in Gnostic terms, if you can't notice the ongoing participation of the archons in the functioning of your actual psyche in this moment, you have no hope of ever being free. It's not going to magically happen. <laughs> You're not going to suddenly find out, find out that you've woken and the door to the jail is open and you get to just wander out. You have to actually catch them in the act. And the place where they're in action is in your actual psyche in this present moment, determining your responses, your emotional reactions and responses, your mental fixations, and even your physicality, moment by moment by moment. And unless you can bring mindfulness to this exact moment, exactly as it's arising, you don't get to catch them in the act. And if you don't get to catch them in the act, you don't get to escape. So, I, I, you know, it's probably a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> you think so? <laughs> you know what? I'm actually going to steal that whole cloth. Um, I have a presentation on on Friday um, about uh, about ascent and you know the Sethians and all that stuff that I like to talk about. Um, and, and I'm just I think I'm just going to lift that part of the video before anybody else gets to see it. <laughs> I'm just going to play it and I'm going to like this this right here. Do this. <laughs> I hereby license that speech attribution share alike. <laughs> 
Come on, Tony, admit it. You're you're going to claim it as your own. No, no. Well, I mean, he's going to be the one saying it, so it'll be hard to do. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, centering prayer. Talk about that a little bit. In what sense? Like in the because I mean, I, I, okay. So I, I'll be more direct. What is? Why is it different from a Buddhist meditation? How? I, not why. How? <laughs> no, no, no. Fair enough. Good question. Um, so, Lodra talked about shamatha. Did he talk about vipassana? Because I, I stepped in and out a little bit. I was in the middle of lunch. Did he talk about vipassana meditation or just shamatha? It's the primary thing he was discussing. Yeah, just just shamatha. I think I I didn't hear him talk about anything else. I don't pay very close attention because I'm pressing buttons. But yeah, no, mm. fair enough. Okay, Buddhism, the the classic Buddhist system, and and this is taught in slightly different. The, these two styles of meditation are taught in slightly different ways in in different sides of the Buddhist tradition. Um, and everything I'm about to say is sort of only weakly true of Zen, but still true of Zen. Um, Buddhist, Buddhism has two primary forms of meditation. They've got a whole bunch of things about visualizing deities and mandalas and, and uh, working with breath with various parts of the body. There's a, there's a whole bunch of other stuff which you'd call meditative in, in the terms that we tend to discuss it. But formal meditation practice in Buddhism rests on two specific types of meditation. One is called shamatha, which can be translated as concentration or tranquility, probably. Um, and mm-hmm. that's, the, that's the meditation form that we're, we're all familiar with from mindfulness training, from John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress reduction or any of the popular places where meditation lands in the West. Um, you allow your attention to rest gently on something, typically the breath, as it moves in and out of the nose or as it moves in and out of the belly. Um, and as the attention drifts from the object, then you return the attention to the object to focus and repeat. Hilarity ensues. <laughs> so shamatha unfolds through a series of stages. It, it progressively um, quietens and draws the mind to rest, develops the senses that as it does what it says on the tin. It develops a sense of tranquility. It also does a bunch of other stuff, um, which you don't talk about when you talk about mindfulness training. Like you, you do, if you do persist with it and you're successful in shamatha training, you will start to find that the fabric of space-time begins to break down into microatomic units of attention which don't seem continuous, which could be a little distressing if you were doing this at work. But um, <laughs> luckily, that, that will take several years to manifest. So, And I, I think they're just banking on the idea that you know nobody's going to really practice it for that long, so maybe it's all okay. Um, <laughs> the, the function of shamatha is the, is the decay. It's to bring into present moment attention the fact that reality as you conceive it is impermanent. <laughs> and it does what it says on the tin. So, <laughs> I, I don't know Fancy why anyone's that. teaching this to business leaders think that, thinking that it's, this is going to be without consequence. But anyway, um, so shamatha, <laughs> right? Now, the, the primary thing that you're doing with that is, is on one level stilling the mind and on the, other, on the other level developing a laser-sharp ability to concentrate. It's really good for both those things, which is a business mm-hmm. win. So that's really good for that. The other style of meditation, which is less of a business win, uh, vipassana, um, is which you generally translate as um, awareness, probably. Uh, so what you're doing in Vipassana is taking the concentration capacity that you build, build in shamatha and you're applying it to what is actually going on in my mind right now. So in shamatha, you don't look at the mind. You're just releasing objects, focusing on the object, releasing objects, focusing on the object. In Vipassana, you're taking your attention and you're noticing what is actually coming up in my mind in this moment. Um, and there's usually instructions about, it could be things that are coming up physically, it could be things that are coming up emotionally, it could be things that are coming up mentally. Um, 
body scanning techniques are really common in, in some schools of Vipassana teaching. And you bring your attention to the moment and the, the usual instruction is to, is to notice that the objects that are arising are impermanent, that they arise and pass, that they're not you and that they're, they're not satisfactory. They don't, they don't satisfy your attention. There's an ongoing craving after the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So something in you is not satisfied by the arising of the object. And again, <laughs> the function of a passioner is to break down the apparent solidity of their mind and reveal its, its fundamentally groundless nature. So there's lots of different forms of concentration meditation. They show up absolutely everywhere. We have, we're abundantly rich with them in the, in the esoteric traditions in the West. Um, a lot of what people get out of hesychasm practice, out of practicing the Jesus prayer, is, is, is a concentration style of meditation. that You're simply returning the attention to that moment. Um, awareness meditations are less common, but still they're around. Uh, and, and that's about using your attention to be able to inquire into the fundamental nature of the mind. And those two things work together really well in Buddhism. So they, they call them, I've heard people refer to them as the, the, the two wheels on the cart that you, you build some tranquility and then you apply that to doing Vipassana. And then at some point your Vipassana practice taps out and the teacher returns you to build more shamatha and then you build more Vipassana and then you build more Shamatha and then you build more Vipassana and the two kind of keep the whole thing rolling on until eventually your mind dissolves into, um, you know, a groundless causal space and uh, all things open out into oneness, um, I suppose. One awakens to the fundamental nature of reality. It does what it says on the tin. It's incredibly successful. Um, <laughs> So centering prayer isn't either of those two things. Um, it's a third style of meditation, uh, which has some parallels in some Buddhist traditions. Um, you usually call it a surrender meditation. So it's not, it, it differs from concentration and awareness practice in that it's not concentration practice because you're not keeping your attention fixed on an object. You're, it's, it, you don't care what your awareness is doing. You just care that it's not fixed on an object, actually. So every time your awareness fixates on something, you let it go. You repeat the sacred word and let it go in classical centering prayer practice. And it's not awareness practice because you're not inquiring into what's going on in your mind. You're simply letting your mind be just as it is. And that's it. So it's, it's distinct from either of them. Um, in a way, it's... <coughs> That whole speech I made just before about, you know, inquiring into the nature of the mind being a fundamental concern of the Gnostic, it's not really doing that at all. <laughs> it's actually really rubbish at doing, doing that kind of, I mean, it, I think it does build a capacity for mindfulness that you can bring to bear on your mind moment by moment. It, it has for me, I think. Um, but the fundamental thing it's doing is dissolving your attachment to mental phenomena as fundamental to your sense of self. If that, if that. Lands. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's been my experience as well. It, it's not a. It, it's it's a training in that you're, you know, it's it's hard to, it's hard to get where you're, it's hard to get the point of it at first. Yes. Because you're like, oh, I'm just not supposed to be thinking, but that's not it. I mean, it's. It, you, that's right. The the thinking isn't going to stop. Yeah. But your attachment to the thinking is what you're working on. Exactly. And. Yeah, and, and ultimately, that, ultimately, the ultimately your habit of coalescing a sense of self around the thinking. Right, right. Cynthia Bourgeau, who's my my main teacher in this, um, 
talks about, you know, initially you might experience, um, you might ex have experiences of, of peacefulness or of, of quiet in the, in the practice of centering prayer. And to start with, that might feel like somewhere where you go, right? In the, in the way that we talk about, you know, going to the Pleroma in, in Gnosticism um, or going to a different plane, you know, it might feel like you're going somewhere to some place of peace when you, when you practice, but ultimately it becomes something that you are. So your sense of who you are begins to drop from the realm of mental phenomena to some deeper realm. Some, um, so your sense of yourself coalesces more around your awareness than it does around what's going on inside your mind. So in Gnostic terms, you're shifting from your sense of yourself being associated with that aspect of yourself, which the, book of, the secret book of John tells us is, is built by the archons, which is the psyche. The, mm -hmm. the mental and emotional interior of, of humanity, dropping from that to the, the pleroma, the fullness, the, the open and unified sense of the, the world and divinity in union as it was on the first day. Um, and ultimately, you'd imagine, the sense of yourself dropping to being itself, to the one prior to the existence of the aeons and the pleroma. Yeah, it does what it says on the tin, right? And then it it always for me begs where, the question: Where do these tins come from? Yeah, you got a whole room full of tins. Yeah, it, it always for me begs the question of: So now what? Right? So you've got that awareness of you know the the fullness of divinity and the unity of everything, and then okay, no, I got to go and take a crap, and I got to go to work, and I got to <laughs> do this, and I got to do that, and um. I read, a, I read a great sentence this morning. As my mom would say, fine, who does the potatoes? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> what have you done for me lately? Uh, <laughs> so, you know, there's this whole – and that's why I liked what, what Lodro said about, you know, you have, to, you have to find ways of incorporating it into what you're already doing or else it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So uh, I haven't read his books, but, uh, you know, I've read the, the synopsis and, uh, you know, and I read the, the – the stuff online about them and that seems to be exactly what he's talking about that you know meditation is great but if you do it once a week while you're sitting at home and you got nothing better to do then that's it's, it's almost it's as not, pointless as not doing it at all absolutely it's not it's not going to help you a great deal so um yes precisely i mean so t two things the question then what right I, and this is kind of why i'm a christian we we're given an archetypal example of what happens when um, ultimate union with the Father is is attained, and that's in the life of Christ. Right. So, um, <laughs> the dis the disciples I note did not have to go to a cave in a remote mountain in order to find Jesus and receive teaching. <laughs> <laughs> he was in the marketplace hanging out with hookers. Right. So it's it's you know as as one's almost obligated to say these days. Um, <laughs> So I think, and that, that is the truth of it. Like when you read accounts of, of genuinely awakened people, almost universally, there's a, there's a phase in which the person's kind of very taken up with the spiritual realization. And then usually in cases of genuine, genuine awakening, there's a return to the marketplace. There's a classic set of Zen pictures called the ox herding pictures, which um, kind of by analogy talks about the kind of leaving the world and giving up all sensory phenomena and entering into the, the ultimate realization of, um, 
of the world as it is, and then the final parts of it are coming back to the marketplace and re-entering the marketplace and just going back about business um, just as it was. Uh, yeah, we have. Um, we're, I think we're getting Dylan Burns, Doctor Dylan Burns, on the podcast or on the video and, and the podcast in the next couple of weeks. I don't know the schedule exactly, but he just wrote a book on the um, what what John Turner calls the Platonizing Gnostic. Uh, texts from the Nagamati Library, the, the four, um, specifically the four Sethian, uh, heavily influenced by Plato kind of texts. Mm-hmm. And that's what they all have in common, is there's kind of a visionary ascent where they go and encounter the Pleroma, encounter Barbello, and then they come back. And they take on that role of Seth as a savior figure. Um, right. As a minor savior figure, you know, in in a way, but um, that kind of that pattern of Seth or of Christ, you know, because they they were kind of interchangeable for the Sethians, the later Sethians anyway. You have this kind of um, prefiguration of the savior figure that you go and meet or go and exceed even, and then you take on that role when you come back. Right. Right, and that and and you know because because we're all gifted. Because we're all handed different names, <laughs> capital N, um, we each have different roles. So not everyone's job is to be Jesus of Nazareth. Some yeah. people's job is to be a fry cook um, or, or to drive cabs you know, or to work in a web design company and help people work out how to have better conversations or whatever. <laughs> um, but it's the, your, your specific gift to express in the world is, is an expression of the out-breath of the Father. So the question is, are you living that or not? And most of us aren't. The, the purpose of all this is to, um, to me, to kind of get out of this deluded state of mind that we get, we get handed as a special gift by the Demiurge as we, as we land in adulthood um, and realign ourselves with, with spirit, with the breath, such that we're, um, we are the Logos spoken into the world by the, the Ruach of the Father. Um, in whatever way it is given us to be, I think. I want to I want to loop back on the the point you were making before because this is all great and um, you know may all sentient beings achieve awakening uh, <laughs> as as they say in in Buddhist tradition. Um, <laughs> may, may all our sad and sorry Gnostics uh, eventually <laughs> achieve ascent into the pleroma and ultimately into the arms of the One. Um, but more tactically and and more in the realm of what most of us get to experience. I, the, the point you made about Londro, Londro talking about, you know, how do you take, how do you take meditation to the bar, right? How do you take it to your PNC meeting? How do you take it? How do you take it onto the freeway? <laughs> Being the primary dilemma most of us are faced with. Um, I think it's a really important question. But for me, for, I, I have a very, 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 very vexed relationship with meditation. I, um, I talk about it a lot and I, these days I practice it a lot. Um, but not so long ago, you know, 10, 12 years ago, uh, I knew I ought to do it. And this is, I think, something I have in common with a, a lot of my fellow folks, both in the church and in the Gnostic movement more generally. I know I ought to do it. Um, and yet, finding the time and the space to actually practice seemed almost impossible. And, and sitting down on a meditation cushion, it just didn't work for me. And the whole thing was very frustrating. So I listened to someone saying, you know, ultimately, you've got to take this out into the world. And I, I thought at the time, what if, um, what if rather than taking it out into the world after I've built skill on the cushion, 
what if I start taking it out in the world because I can't seem to get on the cushion? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I started to, started a practice of trying to bring a meditative awareness to the street as I was walking from one place to another. Try to be more meditative, you know, when I'm sitting in a meeting and would otherwise perhaps be bored. But um, how can I engage with the meeting in a more meditative way? Uh, and it really worked. And that actually, that was the thing that really got me on the cushion was it was easier for me to bring practice into walking around into my life as I walked around. Um, mm-hmm. I guess because I'm getting, you know, I'm getting enough mental stimulation to keep my mind happy so that I could practice at a certain level. And then after a while I started to get frustrated with, um, where that wasn't working. And so I kind of like, right. So this is why I meditate. <laughs> this is why you go sit on the cushion because I want to build more skills so I can do this better. Right. So the practice in everyday life kind of, strengthened and motivated my interest and capacity to practice in private at, at home and the two sort of potentiated each other over time. That was my experience in um, the fourth way work that I do. Um, the, the, the general rule is when you get into the fourth way, at least in, in my lineage of the fourth way, um, you know, you're meeting with a group you have group exercises that help you, um, as you go about your day-to-day activities, become more aware to observe yourself. Um, the fourth way work is actually very focused on you, you, the work is in life. Mm. You are you're practicing self-awareness and presence as you do everyday tasks. Now, <clears throat> as I was mentioning before the before the video show started, there is a great issue of controversy in the Gurdjieff fourth way community over the issue of the practice of sitting, which is a type of, of, of seated meditation. Um, and there are some uh, people who believe that this has no place in the fourth way. However, the Gurdjieff Foundation actually teaches sitting as part of regular practice. And it, the, the old line, it says that, you know, that Gurdjieff was all about making effort. Making super efforts, challenging the body, constantly working and being active, whereas this type of meditation where you're seated and allegedly being passive really has no place in that work. Um, my position is is that in a world where people are hyper stimulated all the time, so busy, multitasking, which is the anathema to fourth way, actually getting people to sit still mm. for 10, 20, 60 minutes is a great deal of work. Superhuman effort. <laughs> that, yeah, and that for many of us it, it, it is. Well, that's now, why I curious, call the video show, I call it Meditation Spiritual Superpower. Because it, it, well, it, it is really a superpower is. because we, 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 you know, if you consider our, our smartphones and things like that, we, we are so scattered that really becomes, a, just set, setting still becomes very difficult. But it was a buildup for me at the, of the practicing of the work in life, the awareness being certain exercises that we would, we would go, we would, we would practice during the day, such as uh, drinking caught beverages with, with our opposite hand, um, mm-hmm. the non-dominant hand, things like that, um, prepared me for when I started doing the settings. And I, Never will never forget when I did my first group sitting, which was actually quite extraordinary. It was with an out-of-town guide, and for the first time in my life, I became aware of my skeleton. And I, of course, I know I have bones. I obviously I'm moving <laughs> around. I'm not this big pile of mush, but um, 
for the first time I actually felt my bones and my skeletal structure, which mm. was just a mind-blowing experience. But it's probably something that I could not have done with my regular everyday work, work yeah. on myself. This was something that very specifically had to be done in this in a seated position with this guide who had an em enormous amount of presence and who was able to help with that process. Um, so I, I do find your, your find what you had to say, Bishop Mansfield, to be a very interesting because that was actually my experience that I had to first start with the everyday workaday uh, sorts of practices, and then it became a lot easier for me to sit, and moreover, it became a very powerful experience. So yeah, maybe that's the takeaway from this podcast. So maybe that's your homework for those of you listening. Uh, yeah. You know, find a way to incorporate that into your into your daily life because I I'm almost positive that there probably aren't very many of you listening to this who are expert meditators and have you know transcended the boundary between the physical and the divine and whatnot, whatever you want to call it. So, uh, and I'm going to do that myself also because I have a lot of I have a lot of little things that I I call them prayer triggers, and I think I've mm -hmm. talked about them on this show before. So, like, um, when I'm driving down the street and I see one of those kind of cross memorials on the side of the highway, that's mm -hmm. one of my little prayer triggers. Yep. So I'll say a prayer, and I've got a couple of other things, you know, and um, when I get certain kinds of emails, I'll I'll do a little prayer, and, you know, just a little <laughs> thing. Well, that's, cause that's kind of what I have Facebook, to do. Facebook, just generally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Every time I feel the urge to check Facebook, I'm like, no, 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 five Hail Marys. No. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so anyway, but I, but that's not exactly the same thing because prayer isn't meditation. Um, prayer is useful, but it's not meditation. No. So I, I think I'm going to try and find a way to, to do more of that. Cynthia Bourgeau says – she said this a couple of times in a, in a bunch of different places – that med meditation is a non-negotiable in spiritual life. You, you, don't get to, you don't get to adequately practice spiritual life without, without meditating some way or another. Mm. So really, whatever you've got to do <laughs> – I, I taught Centering Prayer to someone who may be listening today. Um, Hello. He said he, he, said he couldn't um, – do you still hear me? Yeah. I was saying hello yeah, to the cool. person who – Oh, I'm still right. Listening. Yeah, hi, hi. <laughs> um, he, he told me he couldn't meditate, so I, I checked, you know, do you, do you have a place in the day where you normally feel calmer than other places in the day? He said, sure, when I go outside to smoke a cigarette. I'm great, okay. So um, th that's great. Uh, it's not, you shouldn't smoke. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but perhaps when you finish your cigarette, you could just spend one extra minute and just sit in whatever sense of peace that you've got from smoking, smoking the cigarette and Maybe just as you notice thoughts coming up, trying to intrude on that sense of peace, you could just allow the thoughts to pass, you know, and just, just take 60 seconds. It's only 60 seconds. Um, so you did that for a week, and then the next week I said, well, maybe you could try 120 seconds. Who knows? You know, and then yeah. we bumped it to five minutes. And when we got to 10 minutes, he said, <laughs> we had a Skype call that week, and he said, you're teaching me centering prayer, aren't you? <laughs> I said, absolutely, I am. <laughs> I've actually found an opportunity to to do some of that um, while shoveling snow. Here in New England, we've gotten a lot of snow over the past couple of weeks, and uh, you know, and and I've got a giant 
uh, snowblower that you know smells awful and makes a lot of noise, but I haven't been using it mostly because I'm chubby and I want to lose weight, so I'm, I'm using shoveling as an excuse to exercise. But um, I always like being outside during the winter. It's my favorite time of year to go camping because it's it's so quiet and there's nobody else around, and I'm you know fundamentally uh, you know kind of a loner, so uh, you know that that works for me. But while while I'm out there shoveling. You know, it's, with with no other stimulation, or especially in the modern world, just stuff comes up constantly. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to observe that process. You know, you you rehash conversations that you should have had with your boss, or you you know uh, imagine scenarios that may possibly happen someday, but probably won't. And you just spend the entire time. You know, you're out there for an hour shoveling, and just the cavalcade of pointlessness that goes through your brain during that time is amazing it's amazing to me we all think that we that we drive our brains but we don't we really don't yeah yeah i i think i brought that up during the video show is just the stuff that you know Stuff and, and you know, for me, I, I'm concerned about mastering. And we said, well, but well, it's primarily a vehicle for for being aware of it. And actually, that can take you into some pretty interesting places once you're aware of just when you can be really aware of what's going through your head. It can actually indicate things that you may not be noticing about yourself. When you want to call that your shadow or your subconscious, um, it's it's important information for you to have. And it can be stuff to work on. I remember, I think it may have been Cynthia Bourgeau, um, who I who I just adore, but um, she was talking about, she was at some, I think it was her, she was talking about being at some event, and I think it was Father Keating was, was speaking, and a, a, a nun said, well, you know, I, I, every time I try to do centering prayer, my mind wanders a thousand times, and he says, oh, how wonderful, a thousand times to come back to God. Um, which I just it's thought classic, was a very jo- it's a classic Father Thomas story. Oh, yeah. he's got great yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah, and, and there's, there's that real there's that real sense of um, it, there's a certain joyfulness to the whole thing. And instead of beating up on yourself, it's like, hey, you get to see God again. You get to come yeah. right back to God and, and and be back with God again. And I think it's a it's a it's a joyful and and, and non punishing approach. Yeah, that's perhaps. that's very. Very central to, no pun intended, to centering prayer, the teaching of centering prayer. I love the anecdote that he tells about, um, you know, even if you should have a vision of the Virgin Mary while doing centering prayer, (laughs) you say to her, not now, dearie, I'm meditating. (laughs) (laughs) Father Thomas is is renowned for, uh, there's a series of Father Thomas quotes that get that echo in through the uh, throughout the entire centering prayer movement because everybody that hears them always has to repeat them he has a has a way of expressing the the gesture of gentleness that's um involved in letting go of a thought with the sacred word here and then everybody repeats this because it's so quirky and delightful you you should you should lay the sacred word upon your mind like a feather on a bed of absorbent cotton <laughs> How nice. Just, just weirdly specific, but so nice, right? He always has a twinkly in his eye. Now I want to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like meditating, but you just snore as well. 
Sorry, you know, okay. we've we've been discussing you know centering prayer, but you, you know one of the things that I just want to point out is that maybe not all of our listeners are that familiar with some of these ideas of centering this is, prayer. This is occurring to me as well as we're talking. Yeah. Yes, it and, is. It is. And so I mean, you mean they haven't you, read my book? No, they they haven't. Oh. You know, I, you know, and they should. But for those you know who aren't familiar with it, I mean, can you give just a very brief? description on what centering prayer may look like or even a simple practice that you know uh, for our listeners who have never experienced centering prayer what the first steps that they could be doing absolutely it's um it, it's actually really quite simple to teach it's just it, it takes a while to get the hang of it there's a ton of stuff online um you can you can check youtube for a bunch of cynthia bourgeois and thomas keating and Basil Pennington videos. I think William Menninger has a bunch of videos on there, um, and there's a bunch of stuff online if you want more. But the basics are the basics of centering prayer are grounded in an understanding that, as, as Father Keating puts it, the Holy Spirit is actively at work in the human soul, seeking mm -hmm. to heal it at this moment, mm -hmm. and we impede the action of the Holy Spirit when we grasp and cling to our own thoughts and try to control them. Mm -hmm. So as an, his way of phrasing it is always in a, in a sort of act of faith, to, to simply allow the Holy Spirit to do what it's doing is all that's really required to resolve the situation. And that we're impeding it insofar as we're struggling for, for control or um, some other activity in, inside our own minds. So with that as an understanding, then the, the correct action to take with respect to the human mind is simply to commit to letting, if you, if you notice yourself caught in any thought, and whether that thought's wool gathering or memory or uh, fantasy or um, an emotional state or some fixation on the physical world, doesn't matter. Any kind of mental activity. When you find yourself caught in a thought, the deal is you let it go. Um, Cynthia puts it, you embody that deal in a single word, Typically, there's other ways to do this, but the most popular way is with what they call the sacred word. And the word is made sacred in the using of it. It's not necessarily, you can use a word like God or Father or Mother or Mary or Jesus or some suitably religious word, but it could be anything. It could be yes. It could be open. It could be hat stand, although I wouldn't recommend going above two syllables. <laughs> um, don't pick a word that has a strong emotional resonance for you. If you've got a lot of issues with your in your family of origin then mother or father may not be good choices but for other people they might mm -hmm. be just fine you've got to decide for yourself pick a sacred word um once you've picked it stick with it you shouldn't spend the centering prayer period wondering whether you've picked the right sacred word <laughs> quiz for those of you listening at home why wouldn't you do that because that would be getting caught in mental activity <laughs> okay so you pick the sacred word then okay then the centering prayer period goes pretty much as you'd expect. You sit in a comfortable position with your spine straight. If your back or your, your shoulders are giving you trouble, it's just perfectly fine to lie down as long as you're not going to fall asleep. Um, but as long as your spine's reasonably straight, uh, you're in a relaxed but alert posture. Um, you begin the period by uh, just repeating the sacred word a few times to kind of settle the, the mind and the breath and the body. Um, and in a mysterious method, um, the, the sacred word will just end at some point. It'll, it'll be at some point at which it's appropriate to just let it go. 
Um, and then at some point after that, you will notice that your mind is caught up in thinking. And when you, the second you notice that your mind is caught up in thinking, you recall the deal, you repeat the sacred word, and you let the thought go. And then at some point after that, you'll notice your mind is caught up in thinking. And so you repeat the sacred word, laying it as gently as a flower on a, as a feather on a bed of absorbent cotton, and let the thought go. And this continues, and at some point your timer goes off and says you've been at it for 20 minutes, and then you can get up and stop and go about your day. And that's it. There's no particular, you can say a prayer at the beginning, you can say a prayer at the end, there's no particular need to. The whole activity is a prayer because you're participating with the action of the Holy Spirit, and you're placing your faith in the Father that you will be cared for during the prayer period. So you're participating in the action of the divine. In the, in the action of centering prayer. And, and the interesting thing about it that you alluded to earlier is that the act of doing it is success in and of itself. That there yes. is no, you know, you're, you're not going to get to a point where you sit for 20 minutes and your thinking goes away. Mm-hmm. I mean, you may, that may happen, but it's not, it's not the goal. The no, goal. it's not the goal. It's absolutely not the goal. So it, it, if, um, and the second you notice yourself trying to do that, that's, that's not centering prayer because then you're trying to manipulate the what's going on in the mind in order to create a feeling of stillness. So you're in, you're you're back in the game of impeding the Holy Spirit in the in the soul in, in Christian terms. Um, Gnostics mm-hmm. might think about it differently, but um, Gnostics might think about it differently. But we could just as easily phrase it as as Epinoia's yeah. resistance to the realm of the Archons. Mm-hmm. It's the different language, but the same spirit. We're assured that the Epinoia is with us in every moment. Is the compassionate outpouring of the of the love of the pleroma in the in human life? So, let's get with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. On a on a kind of a tangent, uh, if I may, I've been sure. thinking a lot about materialism lately, and I think that there's a there's a there's a correlation between your desire for things and your awareness of your thoughts. Um, an inverse correlation, kind of. So mm. once, and, and I've noticed this happening to me too. Even though I have a nice smartphone and an iPad and things like that too, and I'm not, you know, I'm I'm not perfect, uh, but I'm I'm working on it. And um, so you see that the the more you are aware of what your brain is doing to you, I guess is a good way of putting it. Uh, the the less you want to go out and buy the latest, you know, sports car, for example, that there's a, and this works particularly well for Gnostics, I think, because if we tend to view the world as imperfect or um, antagonistic, then having that awareness of the need or the, the, the awareness that our brain wants us to have things that won't ultimately make us happy or move us further down the spiritual path that meditation serves excuse me meditation serves to free us from that cycle uh and i think that you can jump start that by doing it in reverse by actively practicing asceticism in the sense that we come to understand it today in you know as a withdrawal from a need for the things of the world that you know, obviously, you need to eat, and you need uh, you know not to freeze to death when it's cold outside. But beyond that, you really don't need much of anything else. And that if 
if a person were to make a disciplined practice of anti-materialism, I guess you'd call it, then that is very complementary to these processes and the, the goal that we're trying to achieve as Gnostics. And any thoughts on that? I got a I got a couple. Um, although I've been raving a lot, so I don't know if I don't know if the other two <laughs> bishops want to get a word in. <laughs> no, they're sick of hearing me. <laughs> um, we, we, this is a topical question because we're coming up on Lent, right? So right. it's an ideal time if you want to take on an, a, some kind of um, ascetic discipline for a, a limited period. Lent's the ideal time in the church calendar to do it, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so I. Uh, I, I think my sense of it is that when one's consciously using um, some kind of denial, whether mm -hmm. it's of food or of, um, you know, as in fasting, as, as is traditional in Lent, or whether it's, you know, simply choosing not to buy the latest iPhone just because it happens to be there, or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, moderating your expenditure on consumer goods mm -hmm. or... Um, or as, as many people these days do during Lent, moderating your engagement with Facebook or, or other social media. Um, any ascetic practice, I think, is useful insofar as you're, to my, in my terms, in my terms of, of what, what seems to work, I think. Um, I think it's really useful when it sharpens your awareness of the ways in which these thought patterns hold you and you're mm -hmm. driven by it. Um, I think it's less useful when you take it on as a as an end in itself, uh, which, which people people do sometimes seem to. Where you know, simply being anti-materialistic is the point of it, and I'm a good Gnostic because I don't like the material world, and so therefore I'm not going to do any of these things. Um, that's just another belief system. That that's just getting held by. <laughs> that's a sneaky archon wearing a hood to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I think what for me um, that I, I one thing I would say um, is the possible is the importance of how do you decide what you're going to deny yourself? How is that decision being made? Um, could this, for example, be that that decision be made as a fruit of a meditative practice? in which you are paying attention to your thoughts and you're realizing perhaps an over-attachment or an over-dependence on something um, to something that really isn't, isn't necessary or that may be something that is uh, vexing you. Or maybe you just notice you're thinking about it a lot and it's timed you know, and you really want to try to see, okay, what if I cut that off for a while, denied myself that? I think that could be very, very useful. Um, my, my concern is in some cases... Um, a person may choose to a, to deny themselves something as a way of beating themselves up, mm -hmm. um, as a way of you know. I think as Bishop Mansfield pointed out, there, there could be a, a, a notion of being holier than thou. Um, I think you know, trying to display just how uninterested they really are in something that they actually they probably are rather interested in. So I think that um, this is a, a, that kind of a decision might be well served by a meditative practice that can help that person make a good choice about what, 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 to, what to eliminate or deny themselves. Yeah, I think it might, I think it, I think it might be useful, though, in and of itself. Uh, and I agree that if you're doing it for, if you're doing it for the kudos, just like any spiritual practice, if you're, you know, if you're doing it to beat other people over the head with, you know, I'm way better than you because I do this. 
then obviously that's not the practice. Whatever the practice is, that's not it. Mm-hmm. Um, so stop doing that. But the even if you don't understand the the really kind of deep spiritual reasoning behind a thing, mm-hmm. I think if you sincerely do the thing anyway, I think that's definitely useful. I think there's a there's value in that just for the sake of doing it. Even so, you don't get it necessarily right now but you know that you know generations before me have done this and have had success so i'm going to have faith in the process and do it for and a see while. what emerges yeah. yeah i mean i get i guess yeah sincerity i think is exactly as you put your, your finger on and mm-hmm. and doing it consciously which is how you framed it in the beginning bringing bringing awareness to what's actually happening as you're doing it and just discovering what what might emerge out of it even if you haven't necessarily planned it up front I, you know, I, I would say that certainly I'm, I'm all about experimentation. I would just caution against um, beating yourself up. It's not if you're not just no, you know right. you can right. you, you don't want to beat other people over the head, obviously. But sometimes mm-hmm. we can um, not recognize how we're beating ourselves over the head. No, it's um, true, and, and it's the same with the <clears throat> same thing with the centering prayer. You know, when when you have that thought, when you start out, you're like, oh god damn it, I'm having another thought, and I'm awful at this, and I sh- you know I, I should give up right now and. And yeah, that's not the that's not the point of the practice either. The point of the right. practice is just to do it. Well, and I think that you, you, that you, just, sorry, Bishop Peterson. Yeah, there's the word here is um, practice. You know, nobody learns how to do anything without practice, and nobody is good when they first start practicing something. If you've ever heard the fearsome scrapings of a child learning to play the violin in a Suzuki class, <laughs> right? Believe me, uh, you know. This is this is a terrible and horrible thing, um, but it is absolutely doing this thing badly is absolutely <laughs> yes, absolutely necessary to developing even competence. All right. Mm. So um, when we, we in the word practice, there, I think it's very important to keep in mind how many of us first learned that word was taking learning a musical instrument. Or uh, you know, practicing your multiplication tables, or or you know that sort of thing. These are the things that we learned as kids, and we, we didn't start out good when we were kids at these at these new things. What makes us think that that's going to change just because mm-hmm. we're adults? Mm-hmm. You know, practice is you know, we're we're probably going to practice very badly at first. That's the way it is. And if you mm-hmm. think that you should be doing something different, maybe you need to check your ego. Absolutely. Check it. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, I just looked down at the time and we are out of it. We've we are out of it. I know that we're totally out of it. I've, I've been out of it for years. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. So anyway, uh, any final thoughts? Anybody want to throw in meditation? Good, bad, indifferent. <laughs> Uh, I'm just going to repeat what I said before. Meditation is non-negotiable. Is Get your ass on the cushion yep. or lie down. Well, do I don't care, but do it. Don't do it while you're driving. Don't do it while you're driving. Yep. Oh, well, that's another show. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're not taking responsibility. Uh, we need to talk with the lawyer about the liability insurance on that, fire, <laughs> yeah. Tony. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Our lawyer, right. Anyway. So... Uh, <laughs> So uh, thank you, Bishop Mansfield, for joining us uh, once again on our show. It's always Thanks a delight. So yes. Thanks for having me. It's been lovely being here. All right. And for those of you listening along at home, we'll see you next week. Take care. Good night, everyone. Good night.
This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License, and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c.